Welcome back, everybody, to Coffee, Conversations, and Badasses Podcast. This episode is going to be remarkable. It's about the tragedy that hit America on September 11th in 2001. And our guest, Jason Palomero. How are you doing, buddy? Good, brother. Thanks for having me. No, thanks for coming on. You know, that, that tragic day hit a lot of people, really actually hit everybody hard, the American people, very hard. But it hit everybody a little bit different. Your experience on 9-11 is just remarkable. What were you doing on 9-11? Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me, brother, and thanks for having such uh, important conversations because I'm a firm believer on you, you never know who's hearing your story. You know, however, maybe small that story might be to you, it could be huge to somebody else. So, so I appreciate it. Um, September 11, 2001, I was just a little bit over two months into my police career. I was in the police academy. So, I started on July 2nd, 2001, uh, and not long after uh, 9-11 happened. I was in a law class uh, with the rest of my recruit class, and there was some commotion outside in the hallway. Uh, our instructor left. Uh, he came back in and said that we were all getting mobilized down to the, we all had to report down to the auditorium. Uh, I know I thought it was just a joke, not a joke. I thought it was a training exercise. Uh, it wasn't as serious as it was being made out to be. We're in the academy. So uh, everything was training. We get down to the uh, auditorium. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget that the first thing or one of the first things that we were told uh, that I remember was that all women and those with children were to stay behind. And with that, what it was, this is no way this is actually true. Um, thinking still it was a training exercise. That quickly changed to everybody. Uh, we all had to muster back up out into the hallway outside the auditorium. And not long after, we were deployed down to uh, what would be ground zero. Um, we were out of the academy, myself and my fellow recruits, for uh, uh, probably about a month, month and a half. Uh, my memory serves me right. And every day there was a different, uh, different post. Uh, we were recruits. We had no guns. We had no shields. Um, we had our gray recruit uniforms. Um, and I believe it was that night or the next day was, uh, no, it was that night. I was uh, assigned down to 34th Street in the Midtown Tunnel. So basically to help direct traffic. Um, they sent us out with our recruit instructors, our academy class instructors. Uh, and I learned real quick why they had done that besides us not being real cops yet. Um, we were telling folks that were having their own stressful experiences that they couldn't go here, couldn't go there. Um, they were all dealing with their own, their own trauma. And here I was in a you know, little recruit uniform telling people what to do. And that uh, it didn't meet so well with, with folks. Uh, and again, that's why our instructors were there. Um, I guess basically to back us up. Uh, I remember distinctly somebody telling me that I couldn't tell them what to do because I wasn't a real cop yet. And I wasn't. Um, so th that's, those were, yeah. That's a wild, that's a wild spot to be in. For one, you're out there wet behind the ears, still kind of getting your feet wet in this new career out fresh out of the Academy. And now you're having one, 
I'm not even sure if you even knew what the hell was really going on at that moment. Other than something bad's happened, I need to get, this is my job, this is my post. And now you're dealing with New York people, which I've never dealt with, but I, I heard they could be, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Really? To the um, point, maybe. Yeah, yeah, to the point, to the point. Yeah. And, you know, they, they speak, they're direct. Direct is a, is a good. They're, good. <laughs> they're direct. Yeah. So how did you cope? How, one, how did you cope with, or how did you hear about what happened? How did that kind of transpire? Did you really know what was going on or was it just the, the rumor mill? No, we, we knew what was going on, but to that point, I, I, you know, I grew up in New York my whole life and I had never been down to the World Trade Center. Not on a school trip, not on a family uh, trip, nothing. So I had never been there. So I couldn't visualize or conceptualize what what people were talking about. Um, on top of that, you know, I, I was thinking my own family. I was thinking of when am I going to get to go make sure they're okay? You know, because remember at that time, though the city was attacked, other things were happening around the U.S. So a naturally human instinct, you want to check on your own family. Um, you know, it was busy signal, busy signal it, when, and if I could get to call them. Um, so in the same, the same time I was nervous and, you know, scared, I have no problem with saying that I was also excited. I was getting to be, I was getting, I was out there. Um, I was it, we were it. Um, so it, it was a bit of both worlds. Yeah, that's, that is, uh, that's, that is excitement is that's wow. I know when I first saw what was happening, I was on a ship. I was on the USS Nimitz. I was completely dumbfounded. I was on duty and went up to the, uh, the division officer's office and TV was going and we're just standing around watching it and we're looking at each other just going, what in the hell? is going on here. What are we about to do? And being there in New York, I couldn't imagine just being boots on the ground in New York and experiencing with it, not only the experiencing with it, but the people who you were directing uh, probably away from the city, were they trying to get to people who may be affected by what happened? You know, I'm sure the, there's many reasons. There's many answers to that. I know I had the 34th street and midtown tunnel. So right you know, everyone trying to get out of the city back to Long Island and the boroughs. Um, what was surreal for me in the days that followed were seeing, and not long after it, it happened, I don't remember exactly when I started seeing this, uh, but it was soon after. It was marked RMPs, marked police cars from as far as the West Coast. States, uh, cops from, from all over the place to see them inside the city where all you would see is the NYPD cars. You now saw LAPD cars. You saw um, state police from all over. That was surreal. Seeing everybody converge into the city uh, made it really, it was really intense. How was the feel for the, you know, for the community? Like it happened and did they come together and saying, hey, we're here to help you. We're here to help first responders no matter where it was at. Yeah, it's a great question because I started my police career with everyone loving us. 
during 9-11. And I left the exact opposite in September of 2020. Um, it was, it was quite, quite the different beginning and end. Uh, but yes, everybody, uh, that's one of the things I, I, I've taken away from that time, not just that day, but the days that followed. And, um, it was the, the love the city showed everybody came together. And isn't that the case when, when tragic events happen and it's too easily forgotten, uh, soon after, but yes, everybody, uh, we, we were, we were favorites then. Uh, maybe not so much the years that followed. No, that's uh, the years that follow was uh, something shifted, and I'll I'll ask you about that later. The I could I could imagine. Did you get your your so you're directing people out of the city then? So you're hey, come on, let's get out of the city, let's go, move it, move it. And I'm sure other people were hearing what was happening, but not knowing really what was happening because as I was watching this. And you're watching this live, and then you just see the first tower collapse, just collapse. And then soon after, the second tower collapsed. I'm sure you had friends down there in, in the academy probably who went to Ground Zero right away. Yeah, I mean, so we had different posts in the days to follow, whether we were directing traffic, whether we were at the morgue, whether we were at the landfill. Uh, whether, whether we were at the, 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 the site, um, we were all over the place. Um, you know, as recruits, you're the cheapest labor out there. So we were, we were sprinkled throughout the city, how the, how we were needed. Um, I, uh, I, I spent most of my days directing traffic around the, um, the site. Uh, a lot of it was just standing around. Um, but there was, there was one day, uh, that I'll never forget. Um, that was, uh, that's stuck in my mind. It was, uh, my partner and I had checked in at the Academy. We, we mustered up, we got our assignments and our assignment for that day was hop on a city bus. They had all the MTA city buses lined up outside the police Academy on 20th street when it was there. Um, so on 20th between two and three, uh, if I remember right. And, uh, we hopped on the city bus It dropped us off down and around the ground zero. And we were told to check in with the highest ranking person we could find, let them know we were from the Academy. Um, because it wasn't clear enough that we were wearing our, 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 uh, rookie gray uniforms, but we did, we were standing in front of one Liberty, one Liberty Plaza. Um, there was at the time there was a Burger King located across the street, uh, and that's where we, we would pick up our, our masks and our, all our gear. Um, we were standing there and somebody yells, the building's coming down or something to that effect. Um, what it really was, was wind blowing glass and the glass falling. Uh, but somebody yells this. So me, she and I start running. Um, and that morning I had broken my baton holder, uh, cause I did have that, um, and I wrap the end string around my duty belt uh, just to secure it. So as we're running, my right leg is hitting my 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 baton. The baton is hitting the leg, popping back up and smacking me in the face. And then it would come back down. And as my knee would hit it again, it would come back up and hit me. So we ran. I was getting beaten up by the baton. We finally just stopped running because, well, the building didn't come down. And if it had, we were far enough away. Um, we both stood there looking at each other, catching our breaths. And we found a, um, we found a phone in the soot by our feet. 
we grabbed it. And uh, I mean, I, I know I did. Um, I think that I just found the victim's phone uh, and it rang. So we answered it and it was another cop. You found my phone. Where are you? Thank God. So a few minutes later, cop comes running up, grabs a phone, says thanks. And off she goes. Uh, and it was, that was it. It was just back down to checking in and telling them that we were from the Academy and whatever you needed us to do. But that's how that morning started. That's how many of the days um, transpired while we were out there. Um, and then it was right back to the Academy and like nothing happened and finish up with our education so we can graduate. Wow. That, that is pretty surreal. How far away was she or how close was she when that happened? Cause I mean, it, it can't be, I'm sure she wasn't five or 10 feet away, right? She was probably, was it blocks or was it? When we, what are you asking? The cell phone. So when oh, you found that cell phone, I don't know where she was. Um, but we had stopped running, found the phone. Uh, and a few minutes after we answered it, cause she called, I guess, you know, to see who's, you know, if somebody found the phone, we, we did. <laughs> and she just came running up because we told her where we were. Uh, I had a look cause you know, I wasn't a city kid, so I didn't know where I was. Uh, told her a couple minutes later, she shows up, grabs the phone, says, thank you. And off she went. Um, thankfully it wasn't a victim's phone, but that know, would believe it was. That would have been a hard phone call to take. Good thing it was just uh, just a PD. <laughs> Got the phone blown out of their whatever hand or that. That's wild, though. I mean, even that because I mean, you were far enough away, but still have that kind of power to launch. Did that shape that day? Did that shape your career as a police officer? You know, I, I wouldn't say that. And the short answer, I guess, would be yes. Um, I this might sound strange. I'm I'm grateful in a sense that I was, and many people might not understand why I would say this, but I'm grateful that I was on the job, and that was my introduction uh, because of the appreciation and the. The experience, as as terrible as it was, I'm happy that I was on the job and not 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 still in school when it happened, because um, it did shape uh, it shaped a lot. And now the coming years collectively really shaped who I am. But that's how it started. My police career started on 9/11, um, and it, and it did um, it did ha- it did play its role in the years that followed. No, that's, yeah, it's, uh, you know, they say, you know, what tragedy shapes us into the people we want to be. And, uh, that, that day shaped not even just people in New York, but you know, people around the world and it changed their lives forever. Uh, that day I had no idea it would change my life either. And it did. It completely changed my life. Not that day, but it was eight years later and getting sent to Afghanistan and going, what in the world? Why am I going over there eight years later? But excited, excited to do so. Right. So your, your career started that day. 9-11 was really the start of your career. But your family, you couldn't get a hold of your family during this time. And you being a police officer, I'm sure... Uh, were you married at the time or was she your girlfriend? Uh, 
No. So we, uh, we met in the Navy. Um, we met when I was still in service. Uh, and I know you could appreciate that. We connected on that. Uh, maybe you'll get into that later. Just a really interesting connection. Um, and then we had, uh, I actually proposed, uh, the day I graduated the Academy. So she was my fiance at the time. Oh, I, I'm sure she was worried sick. You know, I going, was, we just had a terrorist attack and here is my husband out there somewhere. You know, how was that? How was that first interaction when you guys got to ta- got to talk? Because I'm sure cell phones were down. I mean, trying to get through was nearly impossible. Oh, absolutely. You know, and that day, along with every other day, was really long. We really just had enough time to get home, shower, and then turn around and go back. Um, I lived in Long Island at the time, so I would normal my normal commute process was get to Penn Station, get on a train on the Long Island Railroad, get to my at the time it was a Hicksville train station. I get off the train station. I either walk back to, to my parents' house where I lived at the time, or I was parked at the parking garage and I would drive. So it was a long process. Um, so we, we really didn't have a lot of time for, for those weeks that, that followed. It was just, Hey, what do you need? I'd come home probably stinking, probably dirty. Uh, and it was showered and, you know, get rest and turn back around and do it again. Yeah. I mean, that's, I don't, I don't know the commute. I hear a lot about New Yorkers and their commutes to work are almost like a movie essentially, because how many different aspects you got to do to get, just get to work and depends on where you live. Right. It's not like in San Diego, you can work right down the street and walk right down the street. Not typical case unless you live in downtown New York. Right. Yeah. Traffic and commute in New York is traumatic all by itself. (laughs) yeah there's nothing that's 15 minutes no nothing if you're commuting from the long from long island into into the city or the five boroughs nothing takes more than yeah for 45 minutes my commute from long island to downtown brooklyn uh where it's where i work my whole career um was on average hour hour and a half one way uh so there's many cops that feel that same pain Wow. That's, uh, that's, that, that is a remarkable. I've never been to New York. Uh, I do plan on going there one day to experience it and say I did it. Uh, but I don't know. With the state of things kind of going right now, it, it kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies to even go to New York, even think about going to New York. But uh, so that shaped, that kind of shaped the way you kind of, how people perceived you after that 9 11 everybody came together the community was there you backed each other up how long ago, how long after did that start to change interesting um you know there was there were there are multiple events that happened following 9 11 as well uh you know there was a big the blackout um i forgot what year it was i want to say it was 06 i could be wrong um, what do you mean the blackout? What what happened during the blackout? What caused the blackout? So I don't re- I don't remember exactly what caused the blackout, but if your listeners you know Google the blackout of I believe it was two thousand and six. If not, I'm not far off. Um, 
I had gotten on that we finished our shift. I got on the LIRR to go back home and everything shut off. We were just sitting there waiting. And as fairly new cops as well, looks like a good overtime uh, opportunity. So we grabbed a ride right back to the precinct and we were there for days uh, because the majority of the East Coast lost power. Um, and that, I bring that up because those the, that event and others really helped. I mean, it was still uh, a good, it, it, the air was still good with police. Um, things then started to, to change, you know, you, things would pop up in the media and whatnot. And, um, you know, there was, there was highs and lows, but 2020, the pandemic, the, 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 the perception of, of police, uh, with the public really took a shift. Uh, and a lot of folks say, Oh, you know, you retired because of everything that, that was going on. I know I just had really good timing. Um, I'm glad I left when I did. Uh, I didn't leave because of it, but it was, I was fortunate that I had left at that time and, and glad I, I did. Yeah. That's, it's really sad to see what has happened in the law enforcement community. Just, just, I mean, you guys, our hands are tied and uh, I, you know, I don't know that I'm in California, I'm in San Diego and same way, same thing here. They, they've tied the hands of RPD and New York, I'm sure it's, if not the same, probably worse. And uh, just also the community, man. The community is just, it's just a big, huge divide. And it's, it sucks that we have to have such a traumatic event happen for people to come back together and say, hey, we're here. Why? I don't understand. I don't understand that. I don't understand the mentality of it. I've thought about it. I've kind of kept going back and saying, where did this happen? Where did this change? When did this shift of authority take place where people are like, no, we ain't putting up with authority. We ain't putting up with what police officers say. I don't know if it's just the age of social media. I mean, what do you think? What do you think that shift took place? Well, one, I agree that social media definitely has played an enormous role in the, the shift. However, People, when people stop looking at one another as a fellow human and look at and looking at them as against their ideology or against their belief, um, that's where things go wrong. We're all human. We all breathe the same way. Um, and if we, you know, I, I relate it back to cops, right? We're, we're cops that we're human beings that happen to be cops. And when we forget that that's who we are at our core first that's who we are. We're human beings. Um, when we start identifying as the role we play or the party we're uh, in on whatever, uh, what team we're playing for, uh, and look at anyone who is opposite to that as the enemy, that that's a problem. You know, we're, we're still human. Um, my partner, uh, for a long time in cold case, uh, we were totally opposite sides of the spectrum politically and, 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 and in many other ways. But I laid down my life for him because we looked at each other as fellow brothers. We don't have to agree with one another, um, but I respected his different opinion. And that's not happening today. And when that doesn't happen, you don't have to agree. You could respect the fact that somebody else is just as passionate about their view as you're passionate about yours. Yours may be better, right? But 
just sharing that we all have that right to be passionate about our views. Um, and again, when we stop looking at each other as fellow humans, problems happen. Yeah, we, we've lost the art of having a conversation about differences. It's, it's completely shattered. It's almost, you, you can't even almost be friends anymore because, because I blame social media. That social media is a fucking devil, man. That social media has created the biggest divide I have ever seen in this country. And I'm young, man. I'm only 41. And I'm scared of what's going to happen in the future. Because if we're already this divided, I mean, hell, what's going to bring us back together? What's going to make us say, whoa, hey, how come we're not actually having conversations anymore? How can we hate each other? This isn't America. This is not what the foundation was built upon. Going back to 9-11, do you, as you see, and I'm sure you've watched as many videos as I have about the towers falling, do you think it was just those planes hitting, or do you think there was other things that happened, like, you know, there were secondary charges? Well, to the, the, the quick answer to your question is, no, I actually, believe it or not, I haven't watched. I don't watch anything. Um, I don't like to. I just, I didn't personally know anyone that died. I wound up knowing um, people throughout the, as the years followed that had perished. Uh, I didn't personally, but I didn't have to, to feel, uh, I'll be honest with you and your listeners, I, Anytime it was ever on any of the documentaries, I, I get very emotional, right? And I, I'd start crying. I don't, I purposely avoid any shows, movies about that. So no, I, I don't watch anything, nor I didn't watch any buff, buff cop shows either. Um, I, I, I stay away. I stayed away from all of that. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't watch it. Um, but you know what? I just, too many people were lost. However, it might have happened. Um, that's not for me, me to know. Uh, I know that two planes flew into those two buildings, and um, and again, what happened, you know, elsewhere on that day uh, does does it really matter? Anything after that? At the end of the day, too many people died, and um, I did feel that burn to jump back into the military at that time. Um, but I had a, you know, a budding young family starting and uh, they actually called. They said, because I was in active reserves, you know what I'm talking about. So you interested oh, yeah. in going back in. Now, if I wasn't in the police academy and my family wasn't starting, I might have said, absolutely. Um, but I'd have to leave the academy, leave the police department. And and I, I didn't want to do that. I, I was passionate about becoming a cop. So uh, I chose not to do that. But they tried. They sent letters. They called. Um, do you want to come back? Um, and I didn't, but I had that burn. I wanted to go back. That's all that really mattered at that point. I didn't, I didn't care, uh, what the theories were behind it, but I knew people died and, you know, you, you share that same passion. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the same, that's same way, you know, it's, you know, the, you never know what really the truth is because government, unfortunately, I don't think will ever give us a real answer on what happened. Uh, I, I have watched videos of it, not many videos, but I've watched videos of it. Uh, movies. Yeah. Not so much. You know, it's, it, it was, uh, I think it's just too close. 
I don't, I'm not a big movie guy anyway, but I like military movies, but movies about that, that's, that was just too, uh, too close for me and watching it minutes after it happened on, on duty. And then what transpired years later was like, man, it's too much. Uh, I get, I haven't watched a video in man, years, years, probably before I left 2008. Um, but you know, going that, it shaped me to who I am today. You know, going to war actually shaped me into being a man, not joining the military. You know, because I don't think the Navy is really going to make a man out of you. You know, those posters lie back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But you you joined the Navy, man, right? So you went to the Navy before you were PD. Yeah, I did. I, I was, my, uh, I work at a lot of Marines, uh, my organization, and, uh, that probably find it hard to believe. I had a good friend from high school, Tony, that I used to work out with. Uh, he was joining the Marines. We used to go to the park, uh, uh, Eisenhower Park in Long Island. We'd work out uh, with the Marines, the recruiters. I think it was Saturday or Sunday mornings. And uh, I was before the age I needed my parents' signature still. Uh, and I'll never forget a recruiter on the phone with my mom and actually getting loud with her, trying to get her to sign for me to join uh, cause I was still that age. And that was the moment I was like, Nope, Navy. Right. I had <laughs> was joining the Navy and he's like, you know, if you join under me, I he was, you know, obviously you go in E1, he got E2 because he got me to join. Um, so we were in the, we were in boot camp together. I was in E1, he was in E2 in boot camp. Uh, and I, it was that moment where I was like, forget the Marines, join the Navy. My uncle, my godfather was in the Navy. My dad was, is a Vietnam army veteran. And I said, I'm going to go Navy. Um, that was it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's it's interesting how people actually, you know, make that decision on which one they want to go. You know, some people just want to be Marines or want to be door kickers. And, you know, man, Godspeed, man. Love them. Love those guys. Me, I, I was, I went through the rationale, but I was like, I don't know what the branch I'm going to go into. And then my sister was married to a Navy guy, Lieutenant Commander. So he started talking to me about the Navy. I thought about going Marines or Army. But he was really pressuring me to go Navy. And what sold me was to see the world. That's what really sold me. And I was enamored by some of the stuff he was showing me. I was like, let's go Navy. Let's go Navy. Um, but shortly after, I went to Norfolk, Newport News, yep. uh, Virginia, and Norfolk. Wow, man, just yeah, this is not where I wanted to go in the Navy. You know, I wanted to see places. My ship was in dry dock and we just got it finished and we moved it to Norfolk and we were leaving September 21st of 2001 going around the horn and coming up to San Diego. We were leaving New, uh, Newport or not Newport news. We were leaving Norfolk, Virginia and going around South America and coming up and moving the ship to San Diego 10 days after 9-11. And it got delayed, I think, a couple of days. Then we ended up making the move anyway. But our we, we were supposed to go to Brazil, Peru, and Chile, and all of those got kinked. Just, we didn't get to see any of those. But uh, we, were, we were definitely bummed because of security risk. And not knowing what I knew now, but, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, terrorist activity that goes on in some of those countries. So I can understand why they would be like, well, okay, we're not going to go to these countries right now. 
So you, uh, you joined the Navy and, uh, how long did you do? Did you do your four and get out? So at the time I did my three and got out. Uh, I had a three year minimum commitment and there were guys that after I joined, they had switched it at that time to a two year commitment. So there were guys that were getting out before me that had joined after me. Uh, so I did three and it's funny. I was in Newport news too. I stayed on the Fort Eustis army base when the Roosevelt was in dry dock and in Newport news, I started same thing. I started my career needle, needle gunning paint <laughs> on the ship thinking I, I don't, this is, this is bull crap. I don't want to do this. Maybe <laughs> yeah. I, want to, I want to join a different, different branch. So I'll never forget. Um, still friends with him today. I went to see the department chaplain I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I'm living on an army base. I'm chipping paint all day long. I'm working in the mess decks. I don't want to do this. He's like, okay, it's totally fine. You don't have to. I said, okay, good. I, I'd like to get out and, and do something else. I said, okay, well, you can go AWOL and get pregnant. Finish <laughs> your time. I said, well, I'm not going to go AWOL. I'm not going to pregnant. I said, I guess I got to finish my time. And that was it. And we, we pulled out a dry dock again, like you, Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, and we did our med cruise, but I did three, I did three years. Uh, and I got out and worked in the civilian sector for just a little bit of time. I had, was on military deferment. So, um, cause the police department, you know, said You're ready to start the Academy. I was deployed. They put me on deferment. I got out. I actually lived in Virginia for a minute. I was going to, I took the a lot of the entrance entrance exams and physicals for the Norfolk City Police Department passed. I made the decision I'm going to go back home, and then, uh, lucky or unlucky enough, 9/11 class was my class. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it probably gave you, like you said, man, give you a different perspective in law enforcement. You know, um, so we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to hear the rest of Jason's story. But listeners, don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the alert button because it is going to be an explosive rest of the episode. And the show wouldn't be made possible without our sponsors, Red, White, and Badass Brew, and Go Man Go Productions. Your vision is our mission because we see it too. So, you guys, you missed it. It has been one heck of a story so far. Jason, Navy veteran, also NYPD, and he got his start of his career on 9-11. That was the true start of his NYPD career. And now we're going to be talking a little bit about something different in your career. Being a cold case homicide detective. That's pretty wild. I don't know if I've ever even heard of, I've never met one. I don't think, I don't even think I know somebody. Um, and then first of all, are you good talking about that? I'm good talking about it unless it has to do with a case that has not yet gone to trial. I'll be a little limited with details. So how was your career as an NYPD officer, man? So once your recruit 9-11 happened, 
how how did it how did it progress? Did you start off with a vision of saying, "Hey, I want to be a gang detective to changing your mind along the way?" Actually, yes, not a gang detective though. I wanted to work in special victims, so I wanted to work investigating cases where uh, kids, children were the victims, and that that really kind of changed after I had my my daughter and my kids, and I said, you know what, I I. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do, to do that. Um, it was a little too much. But I started out regular patrol. I was uh, I had a steady sector um, downtown Brooklyn. I had a partner, my partner Kevin and I. We had steady sector Charlie. I went from there to what was called the conditions unit. So it was plain clothes at the time. We would do everything from you know quality of life offenses, um, and then from there I went to what was called the crime team. Which well, is, hold on a second. You said quality life offenses. Quality life. So public intoxication, you know, stuff like that. Uh, quality oh, of okay. life offenses. Yeah. Uh, misdemeanor down uh, violations, stuff like that. And then that transitioned over to a crime team, which was felonies, all felonies, right? So robberies, burglaries, assaults. Um, from there, I went into the detective bureau. I got to the 84th precinct detective squad in, um, uh, 2000 and, um, let's see, see, you know what? I think it's probably old age, uh, <laughs> my fried brain, but yeah. I, I then went to the, to the detective squad, uh, and in the NYPD you work 18 months in an investigative track, you're, uh, appointed your detective, you're given your detective shield. So I did 18 months with the 84th precinct detective squad, got my shield and I spent about a 10 years, over 10 years in the squad there investigating everything from, again, robberies, burglaries, larcenies, assaults. Uh, I ended investigating uh, financial crimes, fraud, identity theft. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to get pulled over to the cold case homicide squad, which literally was across the street on Gold Street um, through a mutual friend, knew the CEO of the unit at the time. He said, hey, I met my buddy. Uh, at a party, he said, he wants you to come in for an interview. I said, you're out of your mind. There's no way I'm getting over a cold case, right? Dinosaurs worked there. I was still job standard, a baby. Um, went for the interview and I was there. I think it was six months later. I found myself the youngest kid in the squad, in the, the cold case squad. At any point in time, there was in the teens to like 30 people in the cold case squad citywide. Um, and, uh, that's I, I got there of 2015. I, I, I do. I know that that's 2015 <laughs> the year I got there uh, and I spent the rest of my career there. Wow. What changed? I mean, obviously having kids are going to change your perspective on life itself. You know, they do that. They just have that little magical moment with you and going, fuck. Okay. Yeah. I probably don't want to do that now. <laughs> now I've got this, this little guy or gal in your arms. But what drew you to the uh, victims unit? What was the appeal there when you first started in the PD? You know, I don't, yeah, I just had, uh, I guess, the same passion about that I had in cold case. I just, I felt that the most vulnerable was where I needed, where I felt like I wanted to devote my time, right? The most vulnerable, which are our children, the most prized yeah. possession. And, you know, I, you know, switching over to wanting to investigate cold cases, homicides, it's, that's your next most vulnerable in that they can no longer speak for themselves. There's nobody else to speak for them. You're their voice. 
Uh, and with cold case, the buck stopped there, right? It had already maybe been investigated. It had gone cold. Um, and it was, you're the last stop. And I love that. It's the, the hunt of man that thought they could take another human's life and get away with it. There was nothing more invigorating than that. And I work. How did you, how'd you crack these cold cases? Like, you know, we all, I think we've seen, well, unsolved mysteries for one. I'm guilty. I, I've watched it. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. But it's, uh, and then, you know, I was going to, I'll talk to you about a TV show here in a minute. Um, but unsolved mysteries, like I've watched it and it's always appealing to me, like how you go from taking a 30 year old case and breaking that thing wide open, you know, what, so tell me about one of the cases that really stuck with you. If yeah. you don't mind. No, I, I, I appreciate you asking me. Um, well, your first question, how, how do you crack those cases? You crack it with amazing colleagues, right? You don't do it by yourself. Um, it's a team effort. And I worked with some of the most amazing detectives in the police department in cold case. Um, one of the cases that have always stuck with me, it's funny. I want, I initially wanted to investigate cases with children. Uh, and then I wound up having most of my cold cases involving children. So I, I didn't, I didn't avoid it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so one case in particular was the case of Rashawn Brazil. And I'll talk about Rashawn Brazil because, um, it's, it's, it has been declined by the Brooklyn district attorney's office. Uh, the pr- prosecution has been declined at this point, um, to, uh, to the, you know, unfortunately for, for every detective that worked on that case long before I got it and for Rashawn's mom and family, um, you could look it up. Your listeners could look it up. Uh, I've posted about it. Um, but that case stuck with me because I got so, so involved and so close to the family desires. My family now mom is my family. Um, and it was uh, the case, uh, he's a young teenager, and he was um, he went missing on Valentine's Day. Uh, it was 2006. And he was found uh, shortly after that uh, in multiple places throughout the city. Not to get too graphic for listeners, but um, he was found in, in multiple locations, and some of him w- were not found. Um, that case was investigated um for many years and I was new in the, 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 the cold case squad. And I was looking at that case. If you Google New York city's most notorious unsolved homicides, that's one of a handful that pop up. And I actually printed out that article and I had it stapled in my cubicle. Um, a friend of mine, Richie was retiring. He said, Hey, I want you to look at this case, case of Rashawn Brazell. And I said, you know, it's funny because I was interested in that case. He goes, I want you to take it when I retire. Now each precinct has a, detective squad and they investigate a homicide with a, uh, another homicide detective from a larger homicide bureau, right? So there's Brooklyn North homicide, Brooklyn South homicide, and so on and so forth. That if it's not solved, it then goes cold. Uh, and a homicide can always be prosecuted. There's no statute of limitations for murder. So I said, yeah, absolutely. I want this. I want to definitely run with this case. He says, yeah, but you got to meet mom first. So yeah, it's fine. It's no problem. He says, no, she, she needs to approve of you before you take the case. It's like, okay. Uh, and we, we met one morning uh, in downtown Brooklyn for breakfast. And um, it was a straight up interview. I was intimidated. She's, she's tough. Um, 
And uh, she she asked me, she said, um, I just recently had talked about this. She said to me, she said, you know, um, why do you want my son's case? Um, and do you have a problem with the fact that he was gay? And I said, uh, Ms. Purcell, I, I don't. Um, I said, he's a human being and somebody thought it was okay to take his life. Uh, and that's, I said, with all due respect to you, he's my boss. And I will answer to you, but I answer to him. And uh, lucky for me, she allowed me to have her son's case. And uh, again, grateful that we were able to put a lot of the pieces together and get it to a point where we secured an indictment and, uh, and then a subsequent arrest. And he, the, the individual who I won't name, um, he's, he's in jail now for the murder of another young teenager, uh, thankfully. So he's never getting out, or at least I hope he never gets out. Did he do the same thing to that teenager as he did to Rashawn? Similar. Strangled her. Um, strangled her and uh, put her in uh, laundry bags and dumped her on the side of a building. And it was a very close proximity to where Rashawn wa was living. And I was investigating that case. I was assisting in that case with my partner, Evelyn. Um, and he was a suspect in that case for various reasons. And um, in looking at his history and his whole life, which is, we can get into that. That's one of the benefits. Most people might think it's a detriment to an investigation, but it's actually a benefit because now I'm able to see a larger portrait of somebody's existence and that's going to help me understand them. Uh, and I, we had some connections and then it, it transpired from there and we wound up uh, uh, seeing that he was responsible for both. And to be honest, probably others that we, we, ex we, we exhausted ourselves, you know, looking into, but uh, definitely those two. Um, yeah. Wow. Did you ever get a confession of why he did it? Uh, for, for shots? No. Um, but pl plenty, st plenty, uh, multiple statements that, you know, um, were of value in the investigation. Um, you don't always get that, that slam dunk. I did it. Uh, but you give me enough outside of that to convince me that you, that you, that you did. I don't need you to say it. There's plenty of, plenty of, ev of evidence that say you did, um, whether you want to be honest and tell me you did or not. Sure. Sure. I mean, you deal with the bad people long enough, you know how to read them like a book. You know? Yeah. Trust me, life's crazy. <laughs> oh, oh i bet i bet um so cold cases you uh you felt good enough that man i had a conviction da said nope not enough evidence on this one is that is that why they turned it down oh no brother there was plenty of evidence on this one uh they declined prosecution on rashawn's case for pure laziness um and I, listen i'm not on the job anymore so I have no problem with calling it the way it is. Um, there are some amazing district attorneys that worked on this case, uh, most specifically in the forensics unit. Um, there were some great detectives that worked on this case. There was some great evidence. Listen, there was enough to secure an indictment. Um, and I, I don't know what the real reason is. I'll never know um, what what the mind is of the folks that make these decisions. But um, the person who took Rashawn's life is in jail, never getting out. Does that play into it? Does that play into not 
moving forward with with Rashawn's case? I don't know. But a judge and jury decide the end result. Not, not it's it's the district attorney's job to present the case the best they can to the best of their ability with the evidence that has been compiled and the work that has been done and leave it in the hands of a judge and jury. They decided not to do that. They decided to make that decision prior to that last step and uh, did a disservice to not only Miss um, Brazell and family, but to Rashawn. Well, and also you guys too, the amount of time you spent on working on this cold case to get it to that point. To get the indictment was, I'm sure, was just a slap in the face all the way fucking around with these guys, you know. And here you go, yeah, he might have he, he committed another murder, but that's a whole separate case. That's not the same case. And the DA, I don't understand. I don't understand some of these these decisions that coming out, and especially what scares me now is how we are handling our 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 one justice system, but two. The people who are in jail. Because we would look at it and go, yep, this guy's never getting out. The next way you know, this guy might be getting the fuck out. But if he had that other conviction, it would solidify his stay in the best hotel that he deserves. But I get it, man. Laziness I or whatever it is. Who knows? Um, does that... Is that, uh, you know, I kind of hate asking actually this question. Does that kind of haunt you a little bit today? Or have you kind of like, okay, let that go? No, it's, it's, it's a fair question. Um, you know, I don't know where you stand or where folks stand. Uh, if faith plays into it for, for, for folks, but it does for me. And I'm not in control, my friend. And I'll do the best I can with what I have. And ultimately... These decisions are made by, by God, and and I just, um, I you asked me about a slap in the face, and was am I happy? Absolutely not. But what came out of that investigation was a beautiful thing. It was answers for mom. It was I now know for mom. It was new relationships. It was so much has come as a result of Rashawn. The difference, it, it's all the perspective that we, the lens in which we look through. And, you know, this plays a lot into the mental health space and we can get into that, but it's how are you looking at your situation? Is it going to defeat you? Are you going to let it bury you? Or are you going to use it for growth? Um, I choose to look at the positive. Uh, I would never have met Rashawn's amazing family. Um but I did. And Rashawn is still making a difference well after death. That's awesome. That's what I choose to focus on. So no, nothing else can take that away. If it does, you allowed it to. So for me, I'm fine. Am I happy? I'm not happy. But I'm not going to sit and sulk about it. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the hardest things to let go is let go of these. You know, you, you kind of, uh, I wouldn't say defeats. It's not really defeat because how you just described this, it's really more a positive thing. And uh, his life shaped some lifelong bonds. And that's, that's beautiful. How, but PD has a, a huge issue. And now we, we're, we're getting into that mental health aspect of it. PD has a huge mental health issue. 
because I don't think people know how to cope with what's going on. Being a police officer is not an easy job. You know, you're dealing with the worst of the worst day in and day out. How do you combat that mentally? And have you always had the same outlook in your career? Or is this a newer outlook that you found maybe like post-career? Oh, my friend, this was not an outlook I had my whole career. The reason I'm in the space I'm in today is because I didn't have that outlook my whole career. Um, so, yeah, you know, I was just I'm, I'm tired of seeing my fellow. And it's not just cops. It's first responders. Right. It's veterans. It's 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 larger than just cops. Um, being a cop is what I know. Right. But it does it does seep into the service professions. Um, but no, it's not something that I, I, it's, this is not a, a, a way of, of life that I always had a, a way of thinking. I always had, it's what led me to being in this space. I had to hit crash. I had a crash. I had to hit rock bottom. I had to almost lose everything that I was working for to realize what I was working for. And that that was the most important thing in my life. Not what I was doing. And what was that wrong? But how I was doing what I was doing was damaging what I was doing it for. Yeah. yeah. And, and how, how was that? What were you doing? And what we what was it a person you were damaging? Or you know, or was it, you know, your your post life PD career going into going in the tubes? Yeah, so not a person. Everything that my life touched that I touched, I was damaging. Right, whether it was a relationship with my kids, whether it was a relationship with my wife, um, whether it was family members and relationships with them, my brothers, whether it was uh, through work and and uh, folks that I was engaging with at work and how I was acting, it was everything that I was touching, um, my behaviors, my uh, bad coping skills. Right, my coping skill of choice was my isolation island with with liquor. Right. Um, I use that to escape. I use that to kind of just drown out the noise and just hang out in my own world. Um, yeah, so that, that, that's, uh, you know, a huge that, and you, you touched on something that is extremely massive. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than the industries we are in. It's bigger than the career choices that we've chosen. We have a, epidemic going on with suicide across all military, law enforcement, firefighters, nurses, EMT, just regular civilians. The mental health in the U.S. is out of control. And one thing people are saying is just like, hey, take some drugs, take some drugs, take some drugs. I'm not a big drug guy. You know, you give me some pills and you give me some medication. I'm a complete zombie, man. I can't function. I'm done. It takes me hours in the morning to get out of that funk. But now, now being healthy, like you are today, what did you, what road did you go down to seek you getting back to healthy, getting back that mental health, that positive mental health? Yeah. Um, so initially, I thought, okay, well, I need to try to work on my marriage and I need to try to work on the relationship with my kids. And I, I need to try to do things differently at work. And I need to try to communicate with those in my life that I'm arguing with in a different way. And it just never worked. 
And I realized that I had to work on me first. And if I didn't work on me first, nothing else would get better. And that took a little while, a little trial and error, a couple of smacks in the face, but it was okay. I need to work on me. Um, what don't I know? Right. I always say the questions we ask ourselves are the most important. What questions am I asking myself? Who am I surrounding myself with? What am I listening to? Who am I speaking to? Um, who's influencing me? Who's challenging me to be better me? If I'm not getting challenged, if I'm not in the suck, right, or the struggle well, and learning from it, well, I need to be doing something different, right? And that's what I started doing. I didn't know where to start. You know, in the space that I'm in now, when I talk to first responders, I don't know what the first step is, they say. You made it. You're, you're experiencing the first step at this moment because the only reason why the conversation we're having exists is because you made the first step. You don't have to know what number two, number three, number four is. Live in number one right now. Enjoy it, right? You made the first step. You said, I don't know something. I don't have all the answers. Let me try to figure it out, the curiosity. And that's what keeps us alive. Staying curious, right? Hey, what don't I know? How can I maybe get better? But I, I, I'll, as cops, and I'll tell you personally, as cops, we, 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 we have the answers, right? Either we're arresting you, either we're giving you a summons, either we're warning you, we're taking a report, right? This is a definitive conclusion to our existence in that role. Well, when there's no definitive conclusion to what we're struggling with in our own personal lives, that's a problem. How come we don't have that definitive conclusion? I don't have the answer. So it must be my fault. It must be my problem because I could figure out that conclusion to everything else I do in my role but I can't figure it out now. And then at that moment, too many of us stop being curious about figuring it out. Now, that's not the, that's not everything. That's not 100% of the problem, but I definitely think it's part of the problem. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I mean, it is. It is. It is. It is. And, and I, I like how you really frame that, that curiosity is, is, is what keeps people alive. alive. Because, because that, that is a very true testament because the, the time you really stop, stop being curious, curious that's, that's probably at your time you're most dangerous. Yeah. And then, and then that's, that's when, when bad, bad things can happen. happen. What, what do you... Uh, so, so physical fitness, man. It's, I think, is a key role in mental health. I, 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 had, a, I had a trainer tell me, you know, I could probably get people, more people off of medication if they would actually do the right thing, if they eat right and get physically fit. And at first, you know, I'm like, no, man, that is that easy. Like it's not that easy for one, but two, I, I never really had a big workout regimen. I was just naturally just here. Nice. You know, jeans. I don't, I guess, thank my parents for the good jeans, but I didn't have to work out all too hard, but I was never really happy with myself physically. And so then I got on a workout program, and, and consistent, it's not even been that long, and I'm already seeing the side effects of like, wow, man, this has really changed because it changes, it changes my perspective on my whole day. It's giving me that one positive, it's giving me my win. I call it my win because that is a win. I get up at five o'clock in the morning, I go work out, that's my win. You know, you got to focus on a win. Let's get that win right away. That way, if you stack up a couple of L's during that day, shit, man, you start off with a win. You're already, you're already high on top of it. 
and physical aspect, physical fitness is extremely important to our mental health. Would, would you not agree? And I can't agree with you more. How you think is how you feel. How you feel is how you act. And you affect how you think by what you put in your body. Now, let me just preface with, I did not always believe that to be true after I polished off a dozen Duncan, right? After I consumed stuff I shouldn't be consuming. Um, you know, you, you, you're in those thirties and you're like, yeah, I could bounce back. That's no problem. And then you start to get older and you're like, well, I'm not bouncing back so quick. Um, and that's part of what I surrounded myself with. It was, I, I bit of a bookworm and I, I started reading about, you know, what certain things that you ingest, whether food or, 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 or liquid and how it affects your brain and how it affects your chemicals and how that affects how you feel. And if you don't feel well, I was a lot larger than I am now. Uh, and I was getting sick often. I was having issues because of my diet or lack thereof. Um, and it was just like an afterthought. I wasn't really wasn't prevalent in my mind or in the forefront of, Hey, this could possibly fix or, or, or help mitigate some of the things that I'm experiencing. Um, and yeah, that, that took it. That, that's always a journey, right? Not fall off every once in a while and eat something I shouldn't eat. Like last weekend was, I, I ate too much garbage, but it's like, you know what? At least it's in my mind now. All right, let's get back after it this week. Um, but it's a constant journey, but sure, yeah, sure. depression hundred percent plays into it. I, I say knowledge is power. I, I never had the knowledge of how to eat properly. Like, like I thought, hey, I eat chicken and rice, man. I'm eating properly. Like that, that's out. not wrong. That's your. I was not eating properly for me. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I fall off the wagon too, man. There's this place called Friendly's here in San Diego, man. And these burgers. You have that? I don't know if it's the same. You said Friendly's. Yeah. Yeah, it's called Friendly's. It might be a different, but we had some the same name of a place in the East Coast. Oh, I, I, I don't know. I have to look them up, but they have two locations in San Diego. And this thing is just, oh man, the burger. It started as a pizza place, a pizza parlor. Then I guess they just threw a burger out there and the burger just took off. But this burger, man, is just, oh, it's delicious. That's my cheat, man. I go there. I, I, I hit that up and you can't get one. You have to get two, you know, <laughs> you know, you gotta get two of those. But, but it's, it's okay, okay to do that when you get to a certain level of, of fitness. It's okay to have that. You can manage that into your diet. Uh, and it's actually not as bad for you as I originally thought. Uh, because education. Education. My, my trainer has taught me how to, hey, look, you have to, if you're going to do something like that, you've got to have some transition somewhere during that day. I'm like, wait, I can have that and still, you know, you know, get some, lose, lose some LBs and get some wins. He's like, hell yes, you can. So it's, it's amazing. Now spreading the word about being physical fit and about getting into fitness. I think it's a huge one in service industry across, across the world, not just in the United States, across the world, but especially police officers, man, you guys are having a very physically demanding job. Not only that, but, you got to fight some people sometimes. sometimes. I mean, I mean jujitsu or, or some kind of Krav Maga should definitely be, I think, be a regimen in PD's lives, right? A regular regimen in, in PD's lives. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you hit on a couple of things. Um, you talk about you, you, you know, you start off with a win, so yep. to help at those L's throughout the day. 
And that's just it. Like make more deposits than you, because you're going to get those withdrawals. People are going to take from you, right? You're going to take from yourself yep. maybe through a couple of missteps here and there. But if you've, you've packed those wins in, those little wins, you don't need big ones. You get the little ones because then it'll help absorb those losses and you don't overdraft at the end of the day, right? Because they're going to happen. You can try to avoid it all you want. It's not going to work, right? So as long as you can counterbalance that, um, it's good. But yeah, I think departments are starting to um, work more towards the physical side of things. I know the NYPD is. Um, there's a sports unit. There's so many awesome things happening, uh, in departments as relative to physical fitness, but absolutely it's, you know, I, I, I had, I write about this analogy about going out on patrol with flip-flops, shorts, and a tank top. Would anybody do that? No, you wouldn't. You know how to be physically prepared with your equipment for your shift, right? Your gun, your mace, your handcuffs, your baton, so on and so forth. Why would you go out in life with flip-flops and shorts and then expect when something happens, you're going to be prepared? Like, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. You have to be prepared. So when life does punch you in the face, you're, you're, you're okay. <laughs> that hurt a little bit. I got this thing, but now you go to your, 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 your tool belt, right? What do I need for this situation? If you don't have anything built up over time, like a workout routine, like a, uh, 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 nutrition uh, regimen, um, then what are you going to fall back on? You're going to fall back on your old ways because that's what yep. you know and that's what's comfortable. That's a hundred percent it. You know, you, know, you, you have, have to have that, that routine. You know, you know and, and routine also plays a huge part into this thing. You know, you know if your day is just really nearly waking up whenever and blah 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 blah, blah, blah you're already you're stacking some losses already just not having a routine. You don't, you don't have, have to have every minute segmented out, you know what I mean? But, but like that morning routine, and I found that one of be my most important things is having that morning routine um, and really dialing that in because that set my tone for the rest of the day. Now it's like, all right, what's life got to throw at me now? Come at me. I'm already got the W, so, you know, little losses don't don't mean so big, but that routine is another key factor in into that. Uh, would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's not just the preparation for those losses and being aware that they are going to happen, right? The awareness is important. The preparation is important, but not always thinking this way, but definitely at this point in my life, I like when it gets tough because that's how I know the good, good stuff's going to happen, right? When you're in it, when I was in it, in the stressful period in, on the job, it was... I did not look at it the same way I do now. Now I look at it, all right, it might suck, but what am I taking out of this? What good is going to come from this? This is this is the juice right here, right? So we don't always want to be in that spot, but if you look at it as, oh, I'm in the spot, that means I'm doing something right. Well, I could be doing something wrong, but that means I'm doing the right thing. I'm getting challenged, right? Maybe folks are, are pushing me or challenging me. That means I'm, I'm, I'm moving forward. Right. And during the during the pandemic, I um, went through the John Maxwell uh, folks know what, who John Maxwell is. They could look him up. But I um, got life coach certification through the John Maxwell team and, uh, you know, reading a lot of his books. One of the things he says that I've really adopted is um, failing is OK as long as you're failing forward. Right. You're going to trip up. You're going to make mistakes. Are you moving forward? 
or you, you, you again, getting buried by those mistakes. And I just, just yesterday was on the phone with a cop and, uh, we're talking about, you know, past mistakes and how burdensome they are. And I'm like, you know what? A lot of people try to forget their past. I say, don't forget it. Keep it with you close enough to teach you, but not close enough where you get tripped up and buried by it. Keep it right behind you. And when you need it, yank it a little closer. And when you're done for whatever lesson you need it, go ahead and let it go fall back in line, right? Don't try to forget it because you, you use it for what you need. Failing, failing is part of, part of trying. If, if you're, you're not, not failing, failing, you're not, not fucking trying. trying. Just, just not happening. Just, just not happening at all. I, I you know, you know I, 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 look, I, don't I don't look forward to failure, failure but when, when it happens, happens I, I learn from it. You can't, you can't learn from fear. fear. If you're, if you're scared, scared to do something and scared, scared to try, to try you, ain't you ain't learning from it. That's, That's holding you back. You've fallen flat, flat on your face and going, fuck, that, that hurt. That, that was wrong. Bad, bad move on my part. Nope, I, know I know not to do that again. again. It, it teaches you. Failures, failures are teachable moments. And, and just, just like uh, to be absolutely Maxwell said, falling forward. Because you're falling forward and you're teaching yourself. You're giving yourself that learning lesson. What, what uh, uh so give, give me, give me the, the top two, two three books, man, that, that you would recommend reading. Well, can I, can I do a, a selfish plug that's not even out yet? It's, uh, the book I'm writing with yeah, my yeah. good friend, Barbara called Living Blue. So when it does come out, that'll be one of the ones I have on the list. Um, what other books? Um, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement by Dr. Gil Martin. Um, that book, uh, it's a small, quick read, but I read that book, um, well after I retired and learning about the hypervigilance roller coaster and how as first responders, we, we have those highs and we thrive on those highs and they happen often. And then we come down now we're home, right? We're back to our normalcy and we want to get back up and then we get back up and we're good. And it's in that in between, that's a, a, a big struggle. And I didn't know about that. I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't have any, uh, I had no knowledge or education behind what that really means. Um, I didn't learn a lot of stuff until I, well, after I retired, you know, it would have been, would have been great on day one. Um, but emotional survival for law enforcement is good. Counseling cops, uh, is a good book. Um, there's so many, like I told you, I'm a bookworm. Uh, but those, those are, those are some of my, uh, my favorite law, law enforcement books, um, you know, and, and, and I'll bring up um, the book I'm writing with Barbara again, because I read, but I didn't say goodbye with her that she wrote. And Barbara's mom and dad uh, were both NYPD cops and her father died by suicide uh, when she was uh, giving birth to her triplets. And I read that book and you're talking about comfort, right? Wow. Before in, in, in a, and, um, I read that book and I, I had an idea and I was writing and I said, you know, I asked my wife, I said, what do you think? Should I reach out to her? Cause I, you know, I would like to collaborate. She said, what are you going to lose? She could just tell you, no, I was uncomfortable. So I had to push in that uncomfortable zone, right? Get out of my box by some miracle. She agreed to partner with, with this guy. And a few years later, we were about to publish our, our, our work together. And, um, it's, I, I say that because it's a lesson in get uncomfortable to get comfortable when you're uncomfortable, the good stuff can happen. You have to be intentional 
about finding it. Um, and you're going to make mistakes along the way, but yeah. So th- those are some of the, those are some of my, my fan so, favorites. So w- when, when is your work coming out, man? When's your book coming out? So I'm hoping, uh, by mid October, uh, we are putting the last finishing touches on it. Um, uh, working on the, some design elements and uh, last bit of um, editing, uh, you know, as a, as a, as somebody not in that space, <laughs> I there's more than one type of editor. Um, it's been, a, it's been an amazing learning experience uh, because I have an amazing partner uh, in Barbara and I've learned so much along the way. I'm still learning. And that's another thing too. If you're not learning, you're dying. If yep, you're yep. not doing something new and, and, and stretching, you're stretching yourself, then you're going the wrong way. Um, so I'm still learning, uh, but it, uh, mid-October, I'm hoping mid-October. I will definitely let you know when it's when it's available. Dude, that's, Dude, that's, that's, that's amazing. amazing. So, so yeah, we're going to be able to find this book on Amazon, uh, everywhere pretty much, right? Barnes and Nobles. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Definitely going to be able to purchase it on Amazon. We are thinking about an audio version at some point, um, partly because what do we do as first responders? We spend a lot of time sitting around, right? Whether in the ambulance, waiting, whether in a patrol car, waiting for a job, whether on our really long New York commute home. Um, <laughs> so I want to want to be able to give guys and girls a, an opportunity to, to, to absorb it um, in a space that they're comfortable in. Right. I like a paper book. Maybe that's because I'm old. Right. I don't I don't read on a on a on a tablet or anything like that. But I, I like to have the paper book. And when I'm done, I put it on the bookshelf. So um, but yeah, you should be, you'll be able to purchase it on Amazon. Uh, hopefully, hopefully mid-October. Well, well when, it when it comes out, out let me know, know man, and we'll do a plug for you, man. And, and see what we can do about pushing it out there. So, so Jason, I want to say thank you for coming on the show, buddy. Um, you are a badass man from the day. You started your NYPD career until the day that you finished it. And hitting rock bottom is the hardest thing to do. And it's the hardest thing to sit there and say, I need to get the hell out of it instead of staying there and moving on and working on yourself. You said it. You have to work on yourself and you have to love yourself before you're going to be able to love anybody else. Jason, Jason you're a badass, my friend. Thank, Thank you for films, coming on the show, man. Films mutual, brother. Thank, Thank you, man. So, so where, we can, where can we find you at? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, uh, website, jasonpalamara.org. Um, so pl- plenty of spots, plenty of spots to find me. I, my social media handles is my name, so it won't be, won't be hard. Awesome, awesome man thank, thank you jason uh, uh thanks for coming on dude i really, I really appreciate, appreciate it all right, all right followers, followers don't, don't forget to like subscribe and hit the alert button so you, so you know, know when these badass episodes are coming out until, until next time i'll see you guys later if you have a heroic story and you'd like to share it get in contact with us our information's in the bio also don't forget to hit the subscribe like and share And then I'll see you on the next episode, badasses.